Hello there and welcome back to the Europolex podcast, the only podcast so nerdy that it's no longer invited to any of its friends' parties. I'm Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is the party pooper himself, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for that, Ewan. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, uh, doing very well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Loving all the football, loving the summer of sport that we've got, being able to just watch people play sport. It's just something that I've missed so much being able to watch people do that regularly over the last lockdown. Yeah. We've got Wimbledon, we've got the Tour de France, we've got the Tokyo Olympics, we've got the Lions rugby tour. I mean, it's really just fantastic There's summer of sport. There's cricket going on as well, not that I really care, but I know in the office people have been watching yes. cricket as well. There is cricket going on, exactly. Men's and women's, fantastic. But this isn't a sport podcast. <laughs> so we're here to talk about of course, all the latest election and news from across the continent. And Gabriel has sat down with our correspondent, Cyril Amoski, to talk about regional elections in France, where he was actually a candidate. So there's lots to look forward to in that interview later on. But first, here's a little message about how you can support us and our headlines across the continent. Europolex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. We start our headlines in Armenia this week, where on June the 20th, Armenians went to the polls to vote for the country's next national parliament. The election, of course, followed the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, where the Armenian side suffered a heavy defeat and Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan was forced to call for snap elections. Despite this, Pashinyan did emerge as the winner with his party a civil contract, receiving 53.9% of the votes, gaining 71 of the 107 parliamentary seats and forming a government coalition without the need for any support from any other parties. Robert Kasharan, the leader of HD, the Armenia Alliance bloc, came second with 21.4% of the vote, that's 29 seats, and the third and final bloc entering parliament was the PUD, the I Have Honour Alliance, which gained 5.2% of the vote and seven seats. Worth mentioning that the I Have Honour bloc contains the former ruling Republican Party of Armenia, while the Armenia Alliance contains the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which means that both these two parties will return to the parliament after the 2018 national elections. So a bit of continuity there. As for election day, the turnout was 49.37%, a number slightly higher than 2018. Pashinyan and civil contract managed to be re-elected with a surprisingly high percentage, higher than a lot of polls have predicted. However, it is lower than their 2018 result, of course, where they received an incredible 70.4%. The results, because they didn't line up with recent polling and the general surprise of Pashinyan being erected, shocked opposition blocs who have said that they won't accept results until an international observer has reported the election process as free and fair. So obviously a lot to keep an eye on there, but it was a bit of a surprise on election night for all of us who've been following Armenian politics. Another election that took place since our last episode were the regional elections in France, with two rounds taking place on June 20th and June 27th. The election saw the centre-right Les Républicains and the centre-left Parti Socialiste faring well, maintaining the seven and five regional presidencies they previously held in mainland France, respectively. 
On the other hand, the liberal La République En Marche, and especially right-wing Rassemblement National, did not meet up expectations and did not manage to win any regional presidencies in mainland France, failing to use this election in their favor ahead of the presidential elections next year. For more information on how these regional elections in France went and what this means for French politics, do stick around for my discussion with Cyril earlier this weekend, uh, who UN said also stood in one of the races in Haute-de-France, so he'll be able to give uh, a unique perspective uh, from that. Today also, we bring you an election result from a small British enclave in the Iberian Peninsula. So, of course, Gibraltar uh, had an election on the 24th of June, which is a delayed referendum uh, on easing the country's fairly harsh laws on abortion. With 7,656 votes and about 63% of the total results choosing the yes option, pregnancies will be permitted to be halted within the first 12 weeks if the pregnancy carries a risk to the mother's health and if the fetuses have fatal health conditions. So a very strict legislation for abortion, um, one of the strictest in the European continent, with infringement of abortion laws potentially resulting in a maximum of life imprisonment, even if there haven't been any recent convictions. The past amount was proposed by nine members of the parliament from the incumbent GSLP Liberal Alliance, composed of the centre-left Gibraltar Socialist Party and the Liberal Party of Gibraltar, and one from the Progressive Party Together Gibraltar. This reform was clearly a small one, but quite an important step for abortion rights in Europe, especially when other countries have been attempting to toughen abortion restrictions. And so it's a little bit of a, a different direction in the tide uh, there for abortion rights in Europe. And rounding up election results from the UK and its territories, we had a by-election in Batley and Spen, a constituency in the north of England, which was held by the Labour Party, and we said last week would be one to judge Labour's performance by. And that by-election took place on the 1st of July, with Labour edging out a much-needed victory in the seat formerly held by assassinated MP Joe Cox. The constituency has been held by the Labour Party since 1997, and this time, however, the Labour Party held it again with a margin of just 323 votes for their candidate Kim Ledby to the sister of murdered MP Joe Cox. Despite the narrowness of the win, a win is still a win, and this should take some pressure off of Labour leader Keir Starmer, who has been under pressure for a little while due to his party's poor performance in the polls. And that's all regarding past elections, but there are still some very juicy ones coming up this summer. Uh, as you'll be able to see on the Europe Elex calendar on our website, there are two snap parliamentary elections on July 11th, so coming up very soon. Starting with Moldova, where snap elections were called following a constitutional court ruling, the liberal centre-right pass of President Maya Sandu was the driving force behind calling the election and is suspected to fare well. The main competitor is a newly formed left-wing alliance between the former President Igor Dodon's Party of Socialists and Vladimir Voronin's Party of Communists, called the Electoral Bloc of Communists and Socialists, or BEX. We'll of course be covering the snap election that could define Moldova's place in European geopolitics going forward so stay tuned for that not only on this podcast but on our website as well and obviously all polls will be in our social media feeds another snap election is on the way on july 11th we have no other than the bulgarian election that's the second one of this year as you remember in our episode back in april we discussed how snap elections would most likely take place given the restructure of the bulgarian political system in more detail the ruling center like gerb lost 20 seats the center left bsp led alliance lost 37 seats and the electoral coalitions democratic bulgaria and ismv got 27 and 14 seats respectively while the new populist party i T N reached second place with 
51 seats. Based on the polling, Gerb and ITN are the main contenders for the July 11th election, but no clear path has emerged yet for either of them to form a new government. At the same time, the National Conservative VMRO, right-wing Volia and right-wing NFSB decided to run together on one list under the name Bulgarian Patriots, hoping to pass the 4% threshold. As with the election in Moldova, we will, of course, be covering the election in detail. So do join us for that. And we are going to be watching carefully at the future of this political realignment. Moving away from electoral news altogether, we have to talk about the political drama taking place in Sweden over the past few days. The country's outgoing Social Democrat Prime Minister, Stefan Löfven, lost a vote of confidence last week, brought forward by both the left and the far right in the Swedish parliament. He is the first prime minister in Swedish history to lose a no-confidence vote after having led a difficult minority government that took four months to be formed after the 2018 election, which for Sweden uh, is a very long time. I know maybe our Dutch listeners or Belgian listeners might not be impressed, but for Sweden, it was a very long and gruesome negotiation that led to this very then weak minority government. However, Löfven might just be able to make a comeback anyway, as the leader of the opposition, the moderate party leader Ulf Kristersson, did not manage to bring together a coalition to set up a new government. They were just one seat short, in fact. Thus, the mandate was passed to Löfven, who now has until uh, Monday to collect the votes he had failed to gather during the no-confidence vote. We should mention that we are recording this uh, on Sunday, July 4th, so by the time you'll be listening to this, we'll probably know if he was successful or if um, the rare occurrence of an early election in Sweden is on the horizon. Basically, the process will be that there are four votes for prime minister that will need to be held for a snap election to be triggered, and what's likely is that we'll see our first one, first year von Levian, Um, within the next week or week and a half or so. And it's looking more and more likely that um, that will pass, but we'll obviously keep you posted and um, cynically for Europe elects another snap election for us to follow potentially ahead of the regular ones uh, scheduled for 2022. So yeah, stay posted. And before we move on to our popular polling highlights section, we can't not mention an enormous story which could redefine and restructure the European party system, particularly in the European Parliament. So a declaration has been signed by 16 right-wing and national conservative parties across the EU, laying the foundations for a major joint parliamentary group, or a so-called united right. The 16 parties are, and bear with me, Fidesz from Hungary, Peace from Poland, Rassemblement National from France, Lega and Fratelli d'Italia from Italy, Vox from Spain, FPÖ from Austria, Flems Belang from Belgium, Vumro from Bulgaria, Danks Volker Party from Denmark, Ekra from Estonia, Finns Party from Finland, Greek Solution from Greece, LLRA-KSS from Lithuania, Ya21 from the Netherlands, and PNTCD from Romania. So a real smorgasbord of far-right parties. With the exception of Fidesz, all of the parties are currently members of the ECR group or of the Identity and Democracy group. With the conference being planned for later this year, however, it doesn't look to be totally plain sailing, as the R21 has already said that they didn't actually sign the declaration. And there are some surprising uh, missing parties, such as the powerful AFD party from Germany. As it stands, a hypothetical European parliamentary group containing all of these parties would be the third largest in Europe and would probably hollow out the ECR and ID groups to the extent that they would no longer retain group status in the European Parliament. So it's a big story and we'll of course be following everything going on. But after the merge of EFDD and ENF into ID uh, just a couple of years ago, 
we are watching with anticipation to see whether this could be a single right group in the European Parliament going forward. Yeah, lots of movement there, obviously, uh, throughout the history of the Parliament in terms of how this party group organizes itself. So yeah, really interesting to see if finally they manage to to consolidate, and that will obviously have benefits for them, I imagine, in in parliamentary work and the effectiveness of their their campaigning, etc. So yeah, definitely interesting to to follow. And now for our packed polling highlights, our favorite thing, uh, obviously, as election and polling nerds. And this week, we're going to start in Turkey, where the ruling right-wing AKP of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has recorded its lowest result in 14 years. The party reached just 29.5% and 29.4% in two Avrasia Akam polls. And if that result was repeated in an election, it would be the worst result in the party's history. Uh, so a big setback for Erdogan, who's seeing his support slide in, in Turkey. In neighbouring Bulgaria, on the other hand, the newly founded centrist and anti-corruption party ITN reached a new record high of 24% in a Mediana poll. The party also advanced to first place in the same poll and in a Gallup international poll, making things even more interesting ahead of the snap elections we just talked about. And from Bulgaria, we go to the Netherlands. Um, the drama-filled political system brings the agrarian BBB to another record high in the pale seat projection, this time to five seats. So for context, the party had just one seat in the election earlier this year. And also in the same poll, the centre-right CDA fell to another record low with six seats from 15 the last election. So big movements there, even within just a few months. Uh, this is, of course, connected to the MP Pieter Omzicht leaving the party. And this is certainly not the last time we'll see the Netherlands in our polling highlights. A lot of volatility there. And as you'll all know, um, just uh, a lot of parties uh, that can uh, perform really badly or really poorly, uh, depending on uh, on the political events there. So we'll definitely um, expect more uh, from the Netherlands in upcoming polling highlights. Now for a country that we don't think we've mentioned before in polling highlights, and that's Portugal. A typically stable political system has seen an intercampus poll show the right-wing Chega party reaching a record high of 10.1%, potentially stabilising it as the third largest political force in the country. And going to the very much the other side of the continent, the centrist for Georgia reached a record high with 13% in the latest Edison research poll. The newly formed party was set up by former Prime Minister Georgi Kakaria after he resigned and left the center-left Georgian dream earlier in the year. So a new party in Georgia doing well. And now we go far, but not too far, to Moldova, where the second consecutive episode for the Liberal PAS party has a record high. In the last Watchdog and IPP poll, the Maya Sandu affiliated party reached 50.9%. Yeah, that's 5-0. The party, as we have mentioned, is expected to beat the newly formed electoral bloc of communists and socialists in the snap elections on July 11th. Yeah, definitely uh, tempting to call for snap elections with those kinds of um, polling numbers. <laughs> um, and finally, of course, a mainstay of uh, polling highlights is Italy and Fratelli d'Italia. The National Conservative Party reached 21% in a Demopolis poll, tying it with right-wing Lega. 
And with all those record highs and its undeniable rise, Fratelli d'Italia did eventually reach an inevitable checkpoint. A Techni poll showed them as the highest polling portion nationwide, just 0.1% ahead of Lega, so obviously a huge milestone for them. The poll was actually followed by an SWG poll and another Techni poll that also showed Maloney's party ahead, those times by just 0.4%, but still it's in terms of the, the attention it's getting and, and the signals it's sending, it's, it's big news. Now, we should mention that all these polls were conducted before the potentially very impactful fight within the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the five-star movement, that ended with the party's founder, Beppe Grillo, breaking with former Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte. Some scenario polls show a potential Conte party gaining a lot of support and five-star movement falling even further in the polls, but we shall all have to wait and see. Uh, and as you will know as well, Italy is never shy in polls, so I'm sure we'll have a real bunch of them to to look uh, look out for in in our feeds in the in, in the coming weeks to try and get a sense of the impact of this this drama on the polls but yeah definitely um good times for fratelli d'italia um and it's been going on for uh quite a while now it's rise so it'd be interesting to see if if it can maintain that and what effect it will have on the way the other parties uh, perform and act that's all the news from around the continent for this um episode of your Black's podcast uh, thank you so much for listening and stick around for my discussion with Cyril Amoski on the results of the French regional elections hey everyone if you like this podcast and want to help us grow be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on and of course tell your friends your fellow political nerds all about us that would mean the absolute world we love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email at podcast at europolex.eu. Hi, everyone. We now welcome Cyril Amulski. Cyril, as some of you may know, works with us at Europolex covering Ukraine, Russia, and most importantly for our discussion today, France. When... He's not at Europelex, he's a student at Espol in Lille, and he's also more on the ground political animal. Uh, he'll talk to us today about his standing in the regional election in Hauts-de-France. Uh, that's our second round last week. And very excitingly, Cyril, you're calling in from Istanbul, where you're at a political seminar uh, at the moment. So you're international man. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Very happy to be back on the podcast. So as our listeners will very well know, French voters had the opportunities to go out and vote in the second round of the country's regional elections on June 27th. Not many of them did, which we can discuss later. And a few weeks ago when we talked about the elections, sort of predicting what was going to happen, I talked with our, our other colleague, Adele, and we said, you know, it's not very likely that there will be huge sea changes in, in any results. That is what occurred in the end. There were very few changes in who won each of the regions, at least in mainland France. Uh, however, Cyril, that doesn't obviously mean that there aren't interesting things to note and that there aren't signs of movements in French politics at a national level as well. So I guess let's starting off with your expert view, what did you find was the most interesting race and why? 
So if we talk about a race specifically, I think that there are two that were pretty interesting, but the most interesting one probably was the one in the south of France in the region called Paca. It's actually one of the biggest regions in France, and it was predicted to be one of the regions that the Rassemblement National, so the far-right party, would win. Uh, but actually, on the second round, from what I saw, for example, on the first round, more than 70% of RN's voters did not show up at the election. So that was a very big problem for the RN candidate in Paca, Thierry Mariani, and he eventually lost the elections with uh, only 42% against 57 for the, uh, let's say, center-right to right-wing candidate, Renaud Muselier, uh, that was backed by uh, LR Alliance. And uh, what is interesting is that actually the score of Muselier this year was better than the one he got six years ago. And then maybe the second one, if we talk about elections, the second thing that is very interesting is uh, Ile-de-France, so the biggest France region, uh, where Paris is located. So there was a union of uh, left-wing candidates that was backed by the Parti Socialiste, the, so the Socialist Party, the Greens, and the France Insoumise, so the left-wing party. And they decided to support Bayou for the position of president of the region. And he eventually lost the election uh, against Pécresse, so the incumbent president. And uh, what is interesting to note is that a lot of people decided to vote for Pécresse even though they were mainly on the left, because they considered that Bayou and all the other candidates that backed him were too much on the left. Yeah, you've outlined obviously two of the most interesting results in, uh, in Provence, Alpes-Côte d'Azur, we should say, in the south of France, and then in Ile-de-France as well. As you've said, the key takeaway is that the centre-right, so Les Républicains, really came out as, as the winners of all this. So if we back, if we go back to Provence Alpes Côte d'Azur, which was seen as Rassemblement National's biggest chance at an upset, would you say that them failing to perform well was down completely to turnout? Or is there another reason why they performed worse than um, worse than in the last elections? I would say that probably it's about the turnout, uh, because as I told you, just like in PACA, 70% of the Rassemblement National voters did not show up. And I think that it's not only the fault of uh, RN itself, I think it's a problem about political education, because what we have today as a system, in terms of regions and everything, it's something very recent. Uh, I think it was voted in 2014, it was implemented in 2015, and before that, we used to have 22 or 23 regions, and now we only have 13, if we talk about metropolitan France. So this is already a change. Some people still are not used to this change because they still remember the names of the previous regions. And a lot of people do not understand what is the point, basically, of the regional election. They do not understand what is the point of the regional council. They do not understand what is the point of the departmental council, which is the lower scale of government, right after the regional one. So since people are not educated enough on these matters, they don't really see the point of voting. And uh, I think that it impacted many parties and it impacted especially the Rassemblement National. And maybe a last point, if we talk about the Rassemblement National specifically, they campaigned a lot on the security matter, on the security mm -hmm. theme, which is a very big preoccupation of the French people. But the thing is that it's not a competence of the region so even if RN would have won any of the presidencies, they wouldn't be able to do anything like in practical terms in terms of security, because it's not up to the region 
to solve such issues. It's up to the, to the state itself. So I think this is what also damaged them, this election. So looking then at the center-right party, Les Républicains, obviously a lot of their victories, you know, as, as how the system works in these elections come through alliances with, with other center-right parties, center, centrist parties. What, what did you think they did well that caused them to sort of hold on to their seat and stop Rassemblement National from, from performing? Was it just sort of an inevitable status quo uh, situation or were there any issues that they were campaigning on or anything do you think they did well in terms of campaigning that led to 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 these results i guess especially in ile de france as you say which is the the region of the capital you'd you'd imagine it to be more centrist or center left how come they won won there and how come they were able to attract not only right wing voters but also centrist and e- even some center left voters as as you said what did they do right so there are a lot of things to mention, actually. Uh, if we talk about performing, like a good performance for, for uh, Les Républicains, I think it's debatable because, once again, what is important to look at is the turnout. And the turnout was extremely low. In the first round, less than one out of three person uh, went to the polling stations. So I think this is a, already a, a very important factor to note. And then the second thing, basically people that showed up at the polling stations they mainly voted for the incumbents. So if we take a look at proportions of votes, there's not a single president of region that got 50%, for example, or more of the, of the voters, of people that actually voted and they are registered on the electoral list. So that's one thing. Then the other thing, if we talk about better scores, so yeah, once again, there is the abstention thing, but it's true that in Ile-de-France, just as I mentioned earlier, uh, Les Républicains managed to gain even more votes than in the previous election, because in 2015, Pécresse won with a very small margin compared to uh, her left-wing right rival. But in, in this election, this year, the left-wing candidates were seen as way too left-wing. And if we talk about, for example, other regions, just like PACA, in the very beginning, the left-wing list wanted to maintain itself, wanted to participate in the second round, but they decided not to. Because initially, the exit poll showed that Muselier, so the center-right candidate, had a better result than Mariani. But after the results were counted, Mariani had a bigger margin over Muselier. So in order to stop RN's candidates, there is a thing that is practiced since many years in France. There is like an alliance of, let's say, Republican parties that are against the far right, that unite together. And basically, there's a, like a broad coalition against the far right. So this is why in some regions like PACA, LR managed to get a good score because everybody, well, pretty much uh, all the parties except for RN supported Muselier. Yeah, so you obviously mentioned the left. I thought we, we should we should touch on them really quickly. As you say, the Socialist Party, so, so what used to be the main left-wing party, they held on to all their, the regions that they, they controlled before. But other, other than that, like, how would you describe their performance? Obviously, anything is disappointing in, in this context with the low turnout, but how do you think they come out of, of the campaign, especially looking into the presidential elections next year? Would you say that they're still in a very weak position? Has it improved? And also, I guess, interesting to hear would be around its relationship to both the green party 
which has obviously sort of risen to the fore a bit more, especially after the local elections, but also France Insoumise. Like from, from an outside view, it looks very splintered. Uh, so how, how would you say the results reflect on, on the state of the left in French politics? So if we take the left as a very broad term, we can also include the communists, even though they are not really relevant. Still, they had some departments or they had some regional councillors and uh, some uh, departmental councillors. They, they always held one department, not always, but since, uh, since uh, a lot of years, that is called Val de Marne, and they lost it for the first time since decades, I think. Uh, so this is one that was an upset for the Communist Party. They lost it to Les Républicains. And if we talk about the left, uh, other than the Communist Party, of course, uh, it's actually a very interesting question because, for example, if we take a look at Occitanie, which is a region in the south, the candidate that won the elections is the candidate from the Socialist Party, and she got uh, the best result against any other candidate in the second round. So she is the president that got re-elected with the best result. And she's also one of the only candidates that decided not to get support from La France Insoumise in the second round, or uh, Europe Ecologie des Verts, so the Greens. She decided to run on her own with her party, Parti Socialiste, and maybe some other allies, but at least not La France Insoumise and not Europe Ecologie des Verts. So this is an important thing, because when we talk about the union of the left, it means that at least these two parties that I just mentioned are supposed to go in this coalition of this broad coalition of the left. But in Occitanie, Carole Delga decided not to uh, ally herself with these parties because she said that they are way too left-wing, way too extremist and not Republican enough. So this is an interesting factory because it shows that there are divides inside of the left and in other regions like in Haute-France, for example, you see the, the country in Haute-France, it's the only region where all the left-wing parties except for extreme, extreme, extreme left parties, uh, made a broad front together and had one united candidate. And maybe a very last thing is that the left actually gained, gained one presidency in uh, La Réunion. So that's something positive for them. And if we take a look at all of the regions, so the one on, of the, the metropolitan France plus the extraterritorial regions, the left has more regions now, more presidencies than the Republican. Sorry, I find this to be a really interesting topic. It's something that's very much overlooked because everything is sort of construed, obviously, because of the last election and polling as being between, at the national level at least, you know, being between Macron, the centre-right, and then uh, Rassemblement National. So I find it quite interesting in a country that traditionally has been quite left-wing in periods and seen as being that internationally as well, is going through this this situation. But do you think the Socialist Party, which obviously had a terrible time in the last election, do, do you see their conclusion being that their best way forward is, is to distance themselves from the more, I guess, progressive uh, urban radical parties and try and find a route on their own? Do you think that will be their, their takeaway from this? That's the question. Uh, nobody knows at this point because you have, once again, people inside of the Parti Socialiste that want to create broad coalitions and other people that really don't. And I think it's a really, it's a, I don't know, it's a 50-50 balance inside of the party. And again, if we talk about the national level, the Parti Socialiste by itself is not that relevant. However, if we talk about opinion polls, 
I believe that the opinion poll right after the elections showed that if the left presented three different candidates for the presidency, the candidate from the Parti Socialiste would gain the most votes. So this is an interesting take, I think. And uh, then again, you have people like Carol Delga, which are very against such type of units because she says that they are not Republican candidates. And there was an open call by different mayors and different political activists from the left that asked Carole Delga to be the Parti Socialist candidate for the presidency. Okay. So we should follow up on this. Yes, and on that note, that seems to be something that's, as a result of these elections, it's, it's been used by a lot of potential presidential candidates to profile themselves and show that they have electoral uh, potential. So I guess let's go to Eau de France on that note, which you will know a lot about because you were on one of the lists there, which we will uh, also discuss. But the big strong man coming out of those elections is Xavier Bertrand, who won in the second round with a bit over half of the vote. Uh, and he is, from what I can gather, now one of the sort of front candidates to to run for the Le Républicain in the elections next year. Can you just talk briefly about his performance and his position now ahead of, of next year? So if we talk about Xavier Bertrand, uh, he got a very good score during uh, these elections. And I think it was very symbolical for him to be above the 50% score. And he got 53%, uh, if my memory is correct. So that is a good score. It is a score that is way better than in uh, 2015. But again, abstention, so it's not maybe that representative as in 2015. But what is interesting is that when he won in um, to 2015, there were only two lists in the second round. It was L'Assemblée Nationale with Marine Le Pen and uh, Xavier Bertrand's list uh, of Les Républicains. This year, there was one more list compared to the previous election there was the left-wing list, and they got at, uh, around 20%. So what we see is that even with three lists, Xavier Bertrand managed to get around the same score as last time. But the last time, there were only two lists. So this is, an this is something interesting. And then if we, take, if we talk about his presidency bit, it definitely boosted him. It boosted his campaign because he said from the very beginning that he wants to be candidate for the presidency of France. And he also said that if he loses the election, in his own region for the presidency, that he will stop politics. He will finish his political career. He will put a term to it. So he's not going to do that now because he won the election. And uh, if we take a look at the polls, once again, the, the very same poll uh, that I told, told you about, he had a record high of 18%. Usually he gets something like 14% of the polls and he got 18%. So definitely this election boosted him and boosted his presidential election bid. And let's talk about you now, Cyril, because when you don't cover uh, Ukraine, Russia and France for, um, for Europe elects and when you're not a student in Lille, you're also politically active yourself. So now we ask that you put um, that hat on. Can you just outline who you ran for in Eau de France and, uh, and why? Sure. Uh, so I run for the list of European Union of Citizens, and uh, we got 0.5%. And the idea of the list was to have people from the civil society, so not politicians, not career politicians, not professionals, or people that already have some experience in politics, but just people from everyday's life 
that would create a list and participate in the elections. So that was a very hard process. And we managed to create an alliance of four different parties. Uh, Pache, the party of uh, European citizens, Allons Enfants, which means let's go kids. It's, um, it's a party of, of uh, young people. Uh, Volt, that you probably know. And uh, the fourth party is uh, We Citizens, Nous Citoyens. So it's four very small parties that decided to create an alliance for these elections to run together. And we uh, got, as I say, 0.5%. And um, the, the, the idea was to have a very small list that is different from traditional parties and to see how it would go. So how did you experience then the, the campaign as a, as a candidate? Obviously, it is one of the ones that have got the most attention due to Bertrand and, and the, the left-wing parties all running together in the end. What was, what was sort of stand-up moments for you? Or did you, do you have anything you can tell us from the ground that we might not get from other media outlets, I guess? So I can give you some kind of inside information or some, some things that I experienced uh, as a candidate on a small list. So well, there are two things, two very important things, I think. So the first one, uh, in France, if you want to get reimbursed by the state for your uh, campaign spendings, you need to get at least 5% of the vote. Uh, so of course, for a very small list, this is very hard to obtain. And me, as a candidate on a small list, I feel that, that, that it's unfair that big parties that already have big donors or that have a lot of means, they get reimbursed. So they get all, their, all of their money back. But small lists, like the one I was a member of, we don't get reimbursed. So the money that we use, it's literally money from our own pockets. And we don't have a big budget. So it's very tough for us to campaign. And um, the second thing about this aspect, if we talk about the inside of the, the campaign, you know, in France, at least for the regional elections, if you are a list, you have to print your own ballots. So I think that it's an issue because, as I told you, for our small list, the budget is a key issue. And it was impossible for us to print as many ballots as, as the number of voters. I mean, we managed to print 600,000 ballots, which corresponds to something like 20% of the population. So we could get max, only max, if everybody voted for us, like 20% of the vote. So I think that's an issue. I think that's unfair. And I think that this is a democratic issue. And maybe I, one last thing. Uh, I'm also the president of the student parliament, which is an organization in, in France. And I'm the president in Lille. And uh, I decided to organize a debate with all lists, all representatives of lists. And it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to get answers from other candidates. And I think that it shows today's politicians are still not caring enough about the youth because this is a youth project and i think this is also why uh, a lot of young people did not turn out did not go to the polling stations because they do not feel hurt they do not feel represented and i think that with the attitude that i just described you with a debate that i wanted to organize it shows that in fact the political elites today still do not care enough about the youth so as a student i think that this is an issue and i think that major politicians or major political parties should ask themselves such questions.
Thank you, Cyril, for um, coming on the podcast and, and discussing the regional results and, and also your own candidacy in Eau de France. It's been very insightful. Uh, and I guess you can, you can just finish off by saying we haven't even discussed uh, La République en Marche or Macron in this discussion. And I guess that says it all in terms of its impact in the elections. Well, yeah, in two words, it was a disastrous result for the uh, for the president's party. They managed to win the departmental election in Mayotte. But other than that, they lost everywhere. And in Eau de France, for example, they even had less than 10% of the vote, even though they had four different ministers on the list. So, of course, the results are terrible for them. And uh, they, they should start to think about a new strategy, in my opinion. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you, Cyril. And hopefully we'll, we'll have you back soon. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Sender, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Cool.